Good morning, Grace. My name is Kevin Maurice. I'm the youth pastor here, and I am eager to get into our time in the scriptures today because we're going to spend our morning studying one chapter in the book of Luke that encapsulates the gospel of Christ, and it teaches us the core of God's mission here on earth. We're going to be spending our morning in Luke chapter 15, so please go ahead, open up your Bibles, and turn there with me. We're going to be in Luke 15. And the reason I'm so excited for our time together is because we're going to study three back-to-back-to-back stories that reveal so much about who God is and what he is like and what he does. And so with that in mind, let's go to Luke 15. And the chapter starts, and Jesus is spending time with what appear to be two drastically dissimilar groups of people. Starting in verse 1, we find that the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they started grumbling, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And two verses in, we already see this tension. There's this disparity between this group of people on one side, these tax collectors and sinners, and then on this other faction of Pharisees and scribes. And this tension between them, it's, it's due to the fact that tax collectors, they're ostensibly Jewish turncoats. They're working for the Roman Empire. They're known as, as cheats and thieves. Nobody likes them. And so they're characterized alongside sinners, the sinners. And, and this name is used for flagrant, open, reputationally sinful people. Everybody knows them that way. And then in the other corner are Pharisees and scribes, religious people, experts in the law and and commandments, the most rigorous, pious folks around. They are professionally religious. So you've got religious people on one end, you've got irreligious people on the other, self-proclaimed saints, known sinners. And the religious folks, they see them, those people, that group over there, and they start grumbling. And the rest of the chapter, all of Luke 15, is Jesus' answer to this act that he welcomes and receives and eats with sinners. And so as we navigate Jesus' words together this morning, we're going to see three truths that are paramount. They are foundational to our understanding of the gospel. And what we're going to see is that God loves lost people. That's who he is. He loves the lost. God seeks out lost people. That's what he does. And there are two very distinct types of lostness. Again, three takeaways this morning is God loves lost people. He seeks the lost. And there are two kinds of lostness. So first, let's look at God's heart for lost people. Verse 1 tells us that these tax collectors and and sinners, they're coming near to Jesus to listen to him, to hear from him. And and Jesus isn't ignoring them. He's not rejecting them. He's not ambivalent toward their presence. He's making a a place for them. He's encouraging them to come and stay and, and eat with him. And that is what sets off this religious group. Jesus welcoming these sinners, eating with them. Now, this word receive, your Bible, uh, it might say welcome. Those are two uh, good translations, but the word that Luke uses in the Greek is this word prosdekomai, prosdekomai. 
And this word, it's used six other times in Luke's writing. And every time, it means to eagerly await or eagerly expect. And so it's used in Luke 2.25 when a man named Simeon is eagerly expecting the consolation of Israel. In Luke 2.38, a woman named Anna, she's prophesying to people in the temple who are eagerly awaiting the redemption of God's people. In Luke 12.36, Jesus says it's best to live life like servants who are eagerly awaiting, they're eagerly expecting the return of their master from this wedding feast. In other words, Luke 15.2 tells us that Jesus isn't just inadvertently allowing sinners into his presence. It's not just some sort of like reception line. No, he's, he's on the lookout for them. He's eagerly awaiting their company. He was expecting them. The word receive sounds passive, but Jesus is not being passive. He is actively accepting sinners to come be near him and to hear from him and to eat with him. And so the religious people, they accuse him of fraternizing with these sinners, and Jesus tells them three stories about what he's doing and why. He starts the first story like this in verse 4. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep, and he loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home and then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and he says, rejoice with me. I've found my lost sheep. And I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. The first story, Jesus compares his welcoming of sinners, his, his protection prostecomai of sinners, he says it's like a shepherd who finds his lost sheep and celebrates. And then immediately he follows it up with a second story, and it's similar to the first. In verse 8 he says, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins. She loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and, and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And then when she finds it, she calls her friends and her neighbors together, and she says, rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Second story, Jesus says his receiving, his welcoming of sinners is like a woman who finds a lost coin. And again, what does she do? She celebrates. In both stories, Jesus leaves no doubt about what he means or who he's talking about. He tells everyone, the lost sheep, the lost coin, they represent sinners, lost people. They're being found. It signifies repentance. The celebration is, is what God and all of the angels are doing in heaven because there is salvation taking place. And, and the point is that God loves lost people. Jesus welcomes sinful people into his presence. He is the incarnation of God's relentless love for those who are far from him. He's saying, I am the shepherd seeking out one sheep. I'm, I'm the woman searching for one coin. And this meal that he's sharing in real time with these people, it's a foretaste of the joy in heaven. It's a glimpse of what happens when sinful men and women turn to God. 
because listen, if, if you lose something that you like, you'll look for it until it's no longer convenient to look for. And, and then you learn to be okay with it being lost. But if you lose something that you love beyond measure, you will do whatever it takes to get it back. Everything in your power. And, and if it was lost and then it was found, there'd be so much joy because it was yours again. That is God's heart for lost people, for, for sinners, for those who don't know him. He loves the lost. And that brings us to the second truth that we see in Luke 15, that God seeks the lost. God goes after, he seeks out, he searches for those who are far from him. Jesus compares this love in action to a shepherd who goes after a lost sheep. And when he finds that sheep, what does he do? He, he doesn't scold it for getting lost. We're not told that he's disappointed in this sheep when he finds it all alone. He doesn't threaten to leave it there. He, he doesn't say, don't ever do this again. This is your last chance. What does the Bible say? He puts it on his shoulders. He carries it home. And he rejoices. And Jesus immediately applies this parable to his current situation. That celebration over finding one lost sheep, Jesus says, that is what happens in heaven when one of these people, just one person, repents and turns to God. And he repeats himself. He says, second parable, a woman loses a coin. It's valuable to her. So she looks all night. She searches. She sweeps the house, every nook and cranny, because she wants that coin back. And, and when she finds it, she calls all her friends together, and they rejoice, and they celebrate because it was lost, but now it's found. And Jesus says again, there's rejoicing among the angels of God over a sinner who repents. God seeks the lost. And there's joy because he loves the lost. Two years ago, you may remember uh, this story. A group of children became lost in a cave in northern Thailand. It was a soccer team consisting of 12 boys and their coach. They were exploring this cave on kind of a field trip. It started raining. So their coach made the decision to venture further into the cave to try to escape the water. But they got lost in the darkness. They became trapped and for nine days, nobody knew if this group was even alive. It, it seemed highly unlikely. And on the tenth day, they were found. All alive. And over the course of the next week, international rescue and, and diving teams were formed and, and plans were made and, and supplies were taken down to the children and, and oxygen was stashed and Lights were strung through the cave and wires, and, and people worked day and night until one by one, painstakingly, every single one of those boys and their coach was rescued from that cave. And as they merged out of the, the darkness, there was so much joy on the faces of their parents and their friends, but also on, on the faces of these rescue teams, people who, who didn't even know them. Everyone was just so overwhelmed with emotion, and it was because they were lost, but then they were found. They'd been rescued. But imagine for a second 
what that scene would have looked like if after 10 days in the darkness without any food, barely any drinkable water, oxygen dwindling, if after the boys had been discovered, imagine if one of them, uh, embarrassed or, or just ashamed that he'd become lost in the first place, decided to hide from his rescuers. What, what if he chose to sink further into the cave, deeper into the earth, away from the, the surface and, and from the light? And what if he just hid there in, in the darkness? How heartbreaking would that have been if only 11 of the 12 got out because one of them chose not to be found? Or because he decided that he wasn't worth being found? It, it, it could be that there are some of us who feel that way right now. That you're not worth being found. That you're too far gone. That you're too lost for God to love you enough to come looking after and looking for you. Maybe you believe that you're, you're too deep into some sin or some lifetime of bad decisions has made you irredeemable or unworthy of God seeking after you. Or, or perhaps you're stuck in this cycle with sin, with, with alcohol or, or porn or, or gossip or, or self-hatred or self-interest over all else, whatever it might be, and you're stuck in this cycle of, of sin and then shame and then trying to work your way out of it and, and just do better next time but you know that it's, it's just a matter of time. It's a day or a week at most until you're there again and you're stuck there and you're just caught up in it and you feel lost. The truth is, if you feel that way, if you feel lost, you may actually have an appropriate estimation of your lostness. Truly. But what you underestimate is the love of God for you and how he has and how he continues to seek those who are lost. The reality of sin is that we are all, every single one of us, lost beyond measure. But the beauty of the gospel is that even while we are sinners, Christ died for us because we are loved beyond measure. And so if you feel lost in your sin today, if, if you just feel lost, I want you to hear this. This is the message that Jesus is communicating so clearly in Luke 15. God loves you. And he is seeking after you to find you. And when you turn to him, when you repent, God is there and he's rejoicing Heaven itself is celebrating. Angels sing songs our ears can't even comprehend because they know that you've been found. God seeks the lost because he loves the lost. Those sinners from verses 1 and 2, in the midst of their lostness, Jesus says, I love them. And these first two parables, they tell us that truth explicitly. And Jesus has one story left to tell, and this final parable has an additional facet to it. There's another layer. 
And what we're about to see is that there are two types of lost people. The final story starts in verse 11, and I'd love to spend more time on this entire thing and, and just really dig into it, but we don't have time this morning. So I encourage you, sometime today, sometime today, read Luke 15, listen to it on, on the Bible app, study this third parable, because there's so much going on. It's so rich in detail in what it teaches us about our Heavenly Father. So please read this, Luke 15, starting in verse 11. Right now, just please forgive my brevity. But the third parable goes like this. There's a father who has two sons. The younger son says to his father, I want to live on my own. I'm tired of you. I'm tired of this house. I'm tired of the rules. I don't want to be in your home anymore. Give me my portion of the inheritance. I want out. And the dad allows him to do this. He gives him his portion of the inheritance and the boy leaves. And the son spends all of his money. He squanders it. He lives wildly. But his lifestyle isn't sustainable with his means, and so he winds up broke. And he's eating pig food in the mud, and one day he wakes up to this condition, and he says, what am I doing? It, it would be better to be a hired hand in, in my father's house than this, and so I'm going to go home and I'm just going to see if he'll take me in, not as a son, but as a servant. And so the son begins this journey home. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, and he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead. He's alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. While the son is still a long way off, I love that detail. While he is still a long way off, the father saw him, he felt compassion for him, he ran to him, he embraced him, he kissed him, he loved him. He never stopped loving him. The father sought out the son. And this first portion of this third parable, it resembles the other two, lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. And the point is the same, that God loves the lost and he seeks the lost. But then Jesus keeps going. There's a second part to the story because there's another lost son revealing a second type of lostness. Because meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brothers come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. But the older brother became angry and he refused to go in. And so his father went out and pleaded with him. His father went out and pleaded with him. Hold on to that. We're going to come back to this. But he answered his father, look, all of these years I've been slaving for you. I never disobeyed your orders. 
but you never even gave me a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he can't even call him his brother, he says, this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes. He comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead. He's alive again. He was lost. Now he's found. Do you see the second type of lostness? Do you see to whom Jesus is telling this part of the parable? Up to this point, everybody who's listening is thinking, yeah, Jesus is talking about these sinners, those people, the ones that everybody knows. Yeah, they're lost for sure. But now he's looking past that group of people. He's looking over to this group that's proficient in religiosity, and he's talking to them. And there's been a pattern to this story. All three of these stories, there was a lost sheep, it was found, there's a celebration. There was a lost coin, it was found, there's a celebration. A lost younger son who comes home, he's found, there's a celebration. But then the pattern breaks down with the older son. And there's, there's no celebration. There's no celebration with the older son because it seems that what Jesus is saying is he hasn't been found. He's actually moving away from the celebration. He's moving away from the father who's seeking him. And the older son, Jesus is looking at him and he says, that's, that's the Pharisee, that's this religious person saying that you would welcome and receive a sinner like that, all the while failing to recognize their own sinfulness. Because there's two ways to be lost. The first way to run from God, absolutely, that's the younger brother. But the second way, it's the older brother. To think that you don't need to be found because you were never lost to begin with. And Jesus is warning of the danger of this belief. And then the story ends right there. The story ends, but it doesn't resolve. The father goes out to the older son who is resentful and unwilling to come inside. He says, come celebrate your brother's back. He was lost, but now he's found. And it ends. And Jesus leaves us there at the edge of an ending, and we don't know whether or not the older brother goes inside. We don't know whether or not the older brother joins the party. And this parable actually parallels the end of the book of Jonah. Jonah is a, a prophet, and he's given this mission, and he goes to a city that he doesn't believe deserves to be saved. His mission is to go and preach repentance, and, and so eventually he goes and he, he preaches to the city full of people that he cannot stand. He believes that they're evil, that they are good for nothing but destruction, and he hates this task from God to preach to them. But he does it. He tells them to, to turn to God to, to repent, and wouldn't you know it, they do. 
They turn from their sin. They ask God for forgiveness, and God forgives them. And what does Jonah do? He refuses to celebrate that. Jonah actually leaves the city. He goes outside. He sits down. He pouts. And he's just sitting there looking at this city of people that he cannot stand. And he's just kind of waiting. And he's hoping that God will change his mind and agree with him and say, you know what? No, those people, you're right. They don't deserve my love. They don't deserve to be saved. And that's how the book of Jonah ends. Jonah sitting outside a city bitterly alone. And Jesus' story ends that way too. The older brother is outside of the house. He's away from the celebration. And remember, in each of these parables, the celebration represents salvation. It's the joy of heaven. But the only person in these stories not inside by the end of it. It's the older brother. Jesus has turned his teaching on this razor's edge to show these Pharisees, these religious people, this is the state of your soul. Because there are two ways to be lost. Being irreligious, no care at all for the things of God, no desire to obey or to be with him. Sure, that's easy to see. And you can point it out. You can point that out in other people. That's, that's easy to see. But the second way to be lost, it's actually by being very, very religious. By putting your faith into a system of morality and, and thinking that that is what makes you good. That is what makes you found. That's what makes you righteous. That you're not lost in the first place. A friend of mine recently told me that she once went to visit her mother-in-law and that they went to church together on Easter. And at church, as many churches have done for the past 250 years, they sang the hymn, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And my friend told me that after the service, her mother-in-law said, I just don't like that song very much. And I refuse to sing that first verse because I am not a wretch. I'm not a wretch. I'm a good person. But you see, Jesus doesn't separate the world into moral good people and, and then immoral bad people. His teaching, as well as the entirety of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, we're shown that no one is righteous. No one is good, not even one. As human beings, we are all, every one of us, lost. We are all dedicated to our, our own self-interests, and we're just going about it in different ways. But even though both sons are wrong, the father loves them. He seeks them. The father goes out. He seeks out both of his children. He runs to the younger that's coming up the road. He leaves the party to go speak with the older. And this parable, it's such a, 
a, a beautiful description of God's love in action, and it depicts the mission of Christ. Because it's Jesus who ran to us by being born to die for us. And it's Jesus who left the feast of the glory of heaven to come to earth, destined for the cross. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus made himself nothing. He took the nature of a servant. He stepped down into human likeness. He humbled himself to the point of death, all because of his love for lost sinners. And church, that is the gospel. That is the good news of salvation. And it is a completely different kind of spirituality and faith. It is not the difference between religion and, and no religion. It's not the separation in degrees of goodness. It is a difference in kind entirely. Pastor uh, Tim Keller says it this way, that the gospel of Jesus is not religion or irreligion, morality or immorality, moralism or relativism, conservatism or liberalism, nor is it something halfway along a spectrum between two poles. It is something else altogether. The gospel of Jesus is not that you need to move from no religion toward a religious system or more moral belief. The gospel of Jesus is simply that you are lost. But God, in his sovereignty, in his great love for you, seeks you out and invites you back into relationship with him. There are two ways to be lost, and there's only one way to be found. You can be lost in sin, and you can be lost trying to overcome sin on your own, or you can be found in Christ. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard actually posited a, a philosophical framework for life based upon this truth of the gospel. Kierkegaard wrote that there are only three approaches to life, the aesthetic, the ethical, and the spiritual. The aesthetic life is one of self-indulgence and pleasure. It's the moral philosophy of hedonism. If it feels good, it is good. I'm, I'm the master of my fate, captain of my soul. I can do what I want, whenever I want, with whomever I want. And that sounds just like the younger brother when he wandered in a far-off land. Second approach to life is called the ethical. And this is a pendulum swing that's diametrically opposed to the aesthetic. This is an approach to life that's all about being good enough. So it's self-denial for the sake of moral superiority and rightness. I'm the master of my fate, sure, but my fate is woven into a religious or moral code that I live by that makes me a good person, or at least a better person than them. And so my conviction, my life is built on rules. And you see that in the older brother. His complaint to his father is, all these years I did everything right. And then there's a third approach to life, the spiritual. And once more, it's not an in-between. It's not this limbo state between the previous two. The spiritual approach is something else entirely because it's an approach to life that says only God, only God, only God himself can rescue and fix and heal 
the human soul. Regarding this third way of life, Kierkegaard remarked, God creates out of nothing, yes, to be sure, but he does what is still more wonderful. He makes saints out of sinners. This third way of life, it's called grace. The point that Jesus is making in Luke 15 is that God, in his infinite love and grace, seeks after us to save us. The Bible tells us in the book of Ephesians, it's by grace. It is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And it's not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The younger brother is welcomed, and he receives lavish gifts from his father when he comes home. He didn't deserve that. It was grace. The older brother refuses to join the party, and he boasts, I've worked hard. I've been with you here this whole time. He doesn't understand grace. The Pharisee says, how could you spend time with those people? And Jesus says, for the same reason that I'm spending time with you. Because I love the lost. And I seek the lost. And you're lost too. That's the grace of God toward us. As we close our time together, I I want us today to to grasp what it means that God seeks and saves the lost. This is so foundational to who we are as a a church. This is the gospel of Christ that transforms us as as individuals and as a church community. And so as we, we seek to become more and more like Christ in all of life, it's taking the gospel and the grace of God from, from just head knowledge and bringing it into heart and soul and practice and life. And so this morning, let's meditate on this truth. Let's think through this deeply. That on our own, we are lost. But God loves the lost. Jesus came to seek the lost. And in his life and death and resurrection, we can be found. So find your life, find your, your heart, find your ambition, find your joy in Christ. And be found in him. Would you please pray with me? Father, we, we thank you and we praise you for who you are. God, and we are amazed that you love us, that you care for us, that you seek us out, that while we are far from you, while we are still sinners, you choose in your sovereignty to love us and come after us. God, so we we pray this morning that we would turn to you. The things in our, our lives that we need to repent of, we would. God, that we would know that we are loved beyond measure, that we are your children. Help us to understand this truth. Help us to carry it through and and forward in every aspect of our lives. Help us to live as men and women who have been bought and purchased by the blood of Christ. We love you and we praise you. It's in your name that we pray.
Amen.